0: I often have a real sense uh, that I live my life in one giant courtroom, Uh, not literally, obviously. Uh, I don't know if you can resonate with this, but a a, a sort of sense that you're on trial before other people uh, in all sorts of different situations that you come into, and you're sort of living your life to try and get the verdict that you want from other people, Uh, to get them perhaps to accept you rather than reject you, or, or to approve of you rather than judge you. That's certainly how I feel at times. And if you can resonate with that, I'm wondering, uh, when you're faced with these situations where perhaps you feel a little bit insecure about where you're at, uh, not quite so comfortable, I'm wondering, what is it that you put your confidence in uh, to kind of pump yourself up a bit, to to try and persuade people that they should accept you and embrace you rather than reject you or critique you or judge you? Uh, perhaps you're someone uh, who puts your confidence in your intellect uh, because by and large you're, you're a really quite intelligent person. Uh, so when you're feeling a bit deflated, a bit insecure, what you do you're trying to kind of pump yourself up a bit by putting on display all your cleverness and your smarts and your intelligence. And maybe that's, that's what you put your confidence in. Maybe uh, you're a really quite competent person. Uh, so when you're feeling a bit insecure, you, you try to put on display some skill of yours in some way, so that people would just be a little bit impressed with you. Or perhaps uh, you're, you're just a really hard-working person. Uh, so when you're, you're feeling a bit insecure, what you tend to do is it's really try to spotlight all, your, all the ways in which you're serving, or you're sacrificing, or you just kind of pump up your busyness. Oh, I'm just so busy. That's what we do. We live in a culture that glorifies busyness. Uh, maybe you're a really well-connected person. So, you know, the, the people, are, like, they're feeling a bit insecure, you with me? Uh, but they've always got a name to draw. Oh, you know, oh, I used to work at this place, or oh, you might not know this, but my, my, oh, I come from this family. You know, they're, they're always dropping some name to just sh- put on display their connections. That's what they put their confidence in. What about you? What, what do you put your confidence in before other people? To try and get them to accept you rather than reject you, or to uh, kind of uh, approve of you rather than judge you. I've got That's an important question. Uh, but an even more important question, of course, is what do you put your confidence in before God? What do you put your confidence in before God? In Romans chapter one, uh, from Romans chapter one verse eighteen to Romans chapter three verse twenty, Paul, as it were, has is putting all of humanity in the dock before God. God is the judge, he's holy and perfect and righteous, and we're all appearing before him in the dock. And the question is, what gives you confidence that a holy and perfect God in his heavenly court would accept you rather than reject you, would approve of you rather than judge you? In today's passage, we're going to see Paul warns us of the dangers of putting our confidence before God in the wrong things. Uh, Having what you might call, in particular, a false religious confidence. Uh, The danger is, of course, ultimately, uh, that the holy and perfect God would reject you and judge you rather than accept and approve of you. Uh, That he would send you, as we've heard in the past weeks, uh, to a place uh, of eternal wrath and judgment, a place of hell, rather than receiving you into eternal life. That's That's what's at stake here. And some of you think, well, that's just so narrow-minded, isn't it? So unsophisticated, so unenlightened. Surely we've moved on from this idea of a a literal heaven and hell. Surely uh, God wouldn't judge someone who, who, sure, they might have rejected Christ. uh, But by and large, they're they're a very honest and sincere person, honest and sincere uh, about their particular religious convictions. God wouldn't send that kind of person to hell he wouldn't condemn them uh, I was thinking about this during the week and it reminded me of a scene from C.S. Lewis's book The Great Divorce I don't know if uh, people have read that book uh, but in the book uh, near, near the start there's a conversation between uh, a man who's in hell and a man who is in heaven or a spirit who's in heaven at this point and the man in hell doesn't yet know that he's in hell uh, and so the man from heaven tells him that he's in hell and this is what he says He says, there's no need to be profane, my dear boy. I may not be very orthodox in your sense of that word, uh, but I do feel that these matters ought to be discussed simply and seriously and reverently. The reply comes, discuss hell reverently? I mean, what I said, you have been in hell. Oh, go on, my boy, go on, that's so like you to talk like that. No doubt you're going to tell me why, in your view, I was sent there. I'm not angry. But don't you know, you you were sent to hell, the response comes, because you were an apostate, an unbeliever. Are you serious? And here's the kicker. Do you really think people are penalised for their honest opinions? Even assuming for the sake of argument that my opinions were mistaken, honest opinions fearlessly followed are not sin that's what people in our culture think isn't it what matters most is that you're true to yourself that you're sincere about whatever particular religious convictions you have God would never condemn someone who put their confidence in their honest religious opinions before him in their sincere beliefs, in their fearless convictions boldly going against what the word of God says Surely it matters most that they're being authentic to who they are. But today's passage makes it clear that God does condemn people for their mistaken religious convictions, for their false confidence before him, no matter how honestly or sincerely or fearlessly they might have held those convictions. Even very religious people, very church-going people, very orthodox people, Jesus says in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23... Even some of those people are going to be judged by God. Jesus says, uh, Not everyone who says uh, to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, uh, but only one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say uh, to me on that day, Lord, Lord, uh, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me you evildoers that's confronting isn't it Jesus says at the final judgment which is really what we've been talking about Romans 118 to 3 verse 20 at the final judgment uh, there will be many people who throughout their lives were respected church-going people who were professing believers, who were baptised believers, who were serving in ministries, even leading ministries, casting out demons, prophesying in Jesus' name. Many of those people uh, who no doubt were very honest and sincere and fearless about their beliefs, but they'll be condemned by God. Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. At least in part, it's because their confidence before God is in the wrong place. So in today's passage, Paul's trying to expose this kind of, like, it's very kind. right? What's at stake is a really big deal. So in today's passage, Paul's uh, trying to expose uh, this a uh, particular version of this false, this misplaced religious confidence before God. Uh, the particular version is that of a religious Jew, a religious Jew. And Paul identifies two dangers in particular for this Jew, uh, two places in in which they might be tempted to put their confidence before God. The first is in verses 17 to 24. Uh, You can see in in the outline in the center of the connect card, it's the danger of putting their confidence before God in their religious privileges. Uh, So look there in verses 17 uh, and 18. uh, You'll see there a list of six privileges that the Jewish people had uh, that Paul knew they, they might have been tempted to put their confidence before God in these things, right? to, to think that, that God and me, we've got things sorted, I'm going to escape his judgment, no big deal, because I've got these privileges. Uh, so the first privilege, you see it there in verse 17, uh, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, that, that's the first privilege, that simply being able to call yourself a Jew. Well, you know, the, the Jews were incredibly proud of having that name Jew. What did it, what did it mean? It kind of set them apart uh, as being a, a member of God's chosen, special covenant people. The, the people that God had chosen out of all the peoples on earth, uh, they were a Jew, not like all those Gentiles. The kind of great unwashed, you see. Uh, so this person takes great pride in being a Jew. I'm a Jew. God, God, God wouldn't condemn me. Condemn those Gentiles back in chapter one, but not not me. Uh, second, uh, this is a person. Uh, Paul says, if you rely on the law, uh, the law there it refers to uh, at least at, at a kind of minimum, the Ten Commandments that that God gave to Moses uh, to gave to Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. Probably all the, the rest of the laws, if you read Exodus kind of 19-24, to 24, that, that's the, the reference to the law here. And I think here Paul's not so much talking about uh, this Jew relying on their obedience to the law, uh, but really just the fact that they have the law. They possess the law. God gave them the law and not the Gentiles. So they have this incredible privileged access to the law. And therefore God wouldn't judge them. A third, they boast in God. Now, that might sound strange. Surely, it's a good thing to boast in God, right? And and places in the Bible, it is a good thing to boast in God. If the motivation is to kind of magnify how great God is, that's a a wonderful boasting. But the but the motivation here appears to be to kind of use God to show how great they are. You know, like like I I I'm a Jew. I have the one true God of Israel. Not like all those idols of the nations. And therefore, we've kind of got a free pass at God's judgment. Uh, The fourth and fifth privileges are kind of lumped together there at the start of verse 18. uh, Paul says, if you know uh, God's will and approve of what is superior. Uh, Once again, this is kind of uh, driving at this idea of the fact that they have God's law. And because they have God's law, the, the, the special revelation from God, uh, they have a special knowledge of God's will. Whether well, they have God's law, so they have a superior knowledge of what uh, a, a moral way of living is, a good way of living, a true way of living. And because of this privilege, then God would not condemn them. And because they have God's law. 6th they uh, they're instructed by God's law. Uh, Psalm 119, verses 105, you know that uh, God's, uh, your word, Lord, is a light unto my path. That's the idea here. Because we've got God's law, it lights up the path uh, of how we we ought to live. Now, of course, Paul's not denying that all of these six things are wonderful privileges that this Jew has, this kind of hypothetical Jew that he's speaking to. Uh, but he does know that these privileges have produced in this Jew uh, false confidence before God. A kind of deluded confidence. Right? Somehow they've convinced themselves that because they have these privileges, uh, they're, they're automatically going to escape God's judgment. God will never have an issue with them. And of course, even though this passage is addressed to, to this Jew, and I'm fairly sure uh, that the, no one here is a Jew. Uh, you could say, well it's, it's not relevant at all. it's got a completely abstract kind of thing. It's nice to engage with uh, this kind of passage that's for the Jews. we're not Jews, so let's not worry about it. Uh, but I do think it is relevant for us, uh, perhaps particularly uh, if you had the privilege of growing up in a Christian family. I'm uh, not the exact a- application. But I think there's a reasonable parallel here to, to say that some of us, uh, if you grew up in a, in a Christian family, uh, you might think that you and God have things sorted, that, that everything is always automatically going to be okay between you and God, uh, because of the privileges you grew up with, in particular, the privilege of growing up with access to God's truth, His Word. Right? That's the Jew. We've got God's law. That's the, the incredible privilege we have. Therefore free pass at God's judgment. And sometimes we might think that. I grew up with access to God's law, uh, that therefore God would never judge me. And of course it's a wonderful privilege to be brought up in a Christian home where you have access to God's word uh, from, you know, as long as you can remember. Uh, but the warning here is that you mustn't think that merely having access to God's truth or, or even having a certain knowledge of God's truth will save you. You mustn't think that. In fact, in some ways, having a little bit of knowledge of God's truth can be a bit spiritually dangerous. Because rather than uh, producing in you, by the power of God's Spirit, a humble confidence in Him and His promises, it might produce in you a proud confidence in yourself and all the privileges you have. And that's what Paul points out in this religious Jew in verses 19 and 20, that they're kind of proud self-confidence. If you look there in verse 19, uh, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a, a light for those who are in the dark, a, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. But you, you, I, I assume you, you kind of get the tone in these verses. This is a Jew who knows that in God's law, uh, they have this incredible privilege. The fullness uh, of God's truth, the, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Uh, a wonderful privilege, but, but instead of that privilege, humbling them before God, uh, it's, it's made them incredibly proud and self-important. It's made them look down their nose at those who are less privileged, who, who don't have God's law. So Paul understands that's what's going on in the heart of this Jew and he knows their their proud confidence in their own privileges and their kind of proud disdain, really, of those who are less privileged. So in verses 21 to 23, he cross-examines them. Let's see how you measure up to the law that you have, Paul's saying. He asks these five questions, really, to expose just how inconsistent and hypocritical they are. Look at verse 21. You then, who teach others... Do you not teach yourself? Are you who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that, that people uh, should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the Lord, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Right, this is a, a religious Jew, they presume that, that because they have access to God's law and they uh, can um, have a certain knowledge of God's law, uh, that that gives them the right to preach. Uh, but the question Paul's driving at here is, do they practice what they preach? You know, They presume to be able to teach, but, but uh, do they actually teach themselves? And Paul's point is, if they do, clearly they don't teach themselves well enough. Well, he does that quite easily, doesn't he? He establishes that uh, simply with those four questions. Do they steal? Well, well, yes, they do. Do they commit adultery? Yes. Uh, do they rob idols from pagan temples? That's what's going on there, I think, with that question. Uh, they, they're robbing idols from pagan temples for personal financial gain. Uh, do they do that? Yes. Do they break God's law even though they have it? Yes. So the cross-examination's finished at the end of verse 23, and it's clear that this Jew is guilty. Sure, they have God's law, but they don't obey it. And now some people think, well, surely no kind of pro- sort of self-proclaimed Jewish teacher would do this kind of things in verses 21 to 23. Uh, but at least one Jewish rabbi in Paul's day did lament uh, amongst his peers, this is what he said, he he laments the increase of murder, adultery, sexual vice, commercial and judicial corruption, bitter sectarian strife and many other evils. He's looking at his peers in Paul's day uh, amongst Jewish teachers uh, and he's saying this is a mess. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying you hypocrite. You boast about the fact that you possess God's law, even presuming to teach God's law, and yet you blatantly break God's law. And so in verse 24, Paul Paul kind of condemns this Jew, accuses him. As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You can see that's that's a quote. Uh, it's probably combining uh, a couple of verses, Isaiah 52, verse 5, and Ezekiel 36, verse 22. And in both of those contexts, uh, God's name is being uh, mocked, it's being ridiculed by, by the nations because his people have uh, suffered a, a, a horrible military defeat. Uh, and so the vibe is uh, why should I take your God seriously if he can't even protect you? Is it a mocking God? Uh, Here in Romans, the application uh, is that uh, this self-proclaimed Jew uh, is morally defeated. It's just apparent that they're blatantly morally defeated. And because of that, uh, non-Christians, unbelievers, ridicule and blaspheme God's name, Paul says. And we see this, don't we? We see this in, in our world. Uh, a friend of mine whose dad isn 't a christian uh, he lives in a in a kind of country town in in uh, victoria and uh, I remember a few years ago uh, it came out that one, the pastor of one of the churches in the town had committed adultery, was leaving his family for another woman, and was leaving the the christian ministry uh, and he and his response was why should I ever take his God seriously? You know, I've been married for 40 or 50 years, always been faithful to my wife, and this guy calls himself, no, he presumes to teach me about marriage. Right? The moral defeat of Christian leaders and teachers in particular causes unbelievers to ridicule and blaspheme God's name. I talked to plenty of people in the aftermath of the Royal Commission. It's the same thing, isn't it? Why should I take a church seriously, people seriously, if they can't even look after children in their midst? That's why we're having the congregational meeting after. We've got to do better. Uh, So the big warning in verses 17 to 24 is the danger of putting your confidence before God in your religious privileges. That's the danger. Uh, Particularly the privilege of always having access uh, to God's word, the truth of his word. And we mustn't assume that because we've always had access to the Bible, the Bible's always been taught in our home, our parents uh, wonderfully gave us the opportunity to hear God's word and respond to God's word, but we mustn't assume that because we had that privilege, that we've automatically got things sorted with God. God is not impressed with someone who merely has a knowledge of the truth. He's not impressed with someone who merely has correct doctrine even. Uh, The devil's doctrine is much more correct than yours or mine. That's something much more important than having correct doctrine. Doctrine's good, but not sufficient. To get a verdict uh, from God in his heavenly court of acceptance rather than rejection, of approval rather than judgment, knowledge of God's truth, uh, it has to be uh, knowledge of God's truth plus obedience. Obedience to God's truth. That's what Paul drives at in the following verses. Right? By that standard, none of us are going to get a positive verdict in God's courtroom. Like this Jew that he's just cross examined in verses 21 to 23, Paul could ask similar questions, slightly different questions to us. And we say, Do you do this? Yes, I do. Do you do this? Yes, I do. Just because you know the rules doesn't mean you follow them. And it's following the rules that matters most, Paul's saying. Not just knowledge of the rules, not just knowledge of the truth, but obedience to the truth. So wouldn't it wouldn't be foolish for us to put our confidence before God in our knowledge of His truth, in, in that wonderful privilege. Our second, uh, the second danger, verses 25 to 27, is the danger uh, of putting our confidence before God in, in what you might call your religious identity. Uh, Paul knows uh, that this religious Jew is particularly susceptible to this uh, because they have honestly persuaded themselves that because they are physically circumcised, they will never be condemned by God. They'll never be judged. They're free from God's judgment. Uh, two rabbis in Paul's day said this. Uh, one said, uh, circumcised men do not descend into hell. It's just kind of categorical. If the job's been done, it's all good. A circumcision, another says, will deliver Israel from hell. If you're a part of the circumcised people of God you will automatically escape God's judgment. This was commonplace belief. And of course, Paul's calling that into question, not because he's got a problem with circumcision, just as he didn't have a problem with the law in verses 17 to 24. Um, In fact, Paul in, in Romans 4 verse 11 makes it very clear that circumcision is a wonderful thing. Right, Romans four verse eleven. Since the time of Abraham, way back in Genesis seventeen, uh, circumcision has been a wonderful sign and seal uh, of God's promises to His people, Israel. No problem with circumcision here. Right, well, circumcision is not the problem. But what Paul's pointing out here is that uh, the, the the idea that circumcision alone will uh, kind of give you a free pass from God's judgment—that's the problem. Circumcision alone will not save this Jew from God's judgment. Circumcision was never supposed to be a kind of substitute for obeying God's law. It was supposed to be a sign of being committed to obeying God's law. So look in verse 25. Paul says in that verse, Circumcision only has value if you actually obey God's law. Uh, If you don't obey it, as this Jew doesn't, he's shown that in verses 21 to 23, uh, then you may as well not be circumcised, Paul says. No value at all in circumcision. In that sense, circumcision is a little bit like this wedding ring. Uh, My wedding ring has value if I'm being faithful to Gabby as my wife. Because it points to, to all the wonderful promises that we've made to one another. It's a sign and seal of those promises. Uh, but if I'm being unfaithful to Gabby, if I'm breaking the covenant, if I'm committing adultery, then this wedding ring is worth nothing at all. It's just a sham. Right? Circumcision plus obedience, Paul is saying, has value, but circumcision uh, without, with dis- plus disobedience is no value. Uh, and to drive this idea home, Paul proposes uh, a really outrageous situation. To these Jewish years, a outrageous situation in verses 26 and 27. So then, he says, uh, if those who are not circumcised uh, keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? Now the one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. You see Paul's argument, if it's obedience to the law that matters most, which it is, uh, then uh, hypothetically, if an uncircumcised Gentile was obe- uh, able to fulfill the requirements of God's law, they would be able to condemn this Jew. I mean, that, that, was, that would have been outrageous for this Jew to hear. You remember at the start of the passage, we had that kind of uh, self-righteous, moralistic person, possibly a Jew, maybe a kind of Jew or Gentile, but they were standing in condemnation over the Gentile behaviours in the second half of chapter 1. They saw it as their right and privilege to condemn the evil Gentiles. And here Paul's saying, no, no, if, if it's not circumcision plus obedience, in theory, if a Gentile was able to fulfil the requirements of God's law, they would be able to condemn you. And now, of course, Paul's not saying that's actually possible. We've got to be careful there. Uh, There's no way that a Gentile could fulfill the requirements of God's law. We saw that last thing. All of us are are going to fall short. Uh, But he does want this Jew to understand that being circumcised alone will not save them from God's judgment. It's dangerous for them to put their confidence in that before God. Uh, To put their confidence in this external sign of their identity as one of God's people. Once again, we're not, not, I suspect not many of us here are Jews, uh, but there is still a danger here. Is't there a danger for us to put our confidence before God uh, in the various externals of our religious identity? What do you put your confidence in before God? Well, I was baptized as a kid. What do you put your confidence in? Well, I, I grew up going to this church. You know It's not just any church, right? It was a good church. Not like those churches that don't teach the Bible well. This was a solid church. And in the church and at home, my parents, my parents taught me the Bible. I remember sitting around and you know, dad opening up the Bible with us. What, put, what do you put your confidence in before God? Well, when I was at university, I attended, I attended the Christian Union group. I was taught by this particular Bible teacher. They mentored me. That's what I put my confidence in. I put my confidence in the fact that my dad's a pastor, or my parents were missionaries. And those are all wonderful things, aren't they? But putting your confidence in those things before God won't save you from his judgment. What will save you from God's judgment is not confidence in your religious privileges, as wonderful as they might be, or your religious identity, but confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what will save you. So you look here in verses 28 and 29, the end of the passage, Paul points out that for the Jews, circumcision was always supposed to be an outward physical sign of an inward spiritual reality. And that's his point in those verses. That the reality here is a heart that has been circumcised. And that's to say a heart that's been transformed because the sinful nature, as it were, has been kind of cut away through the work of Christ and by the power of God's Spirit. Uh, so this is a person uh, who has genuine faith not in their circumcision but in the promises of God. So let's read those verses verses twenty eight and twenty nine A person is not a Jew who is only out, who is only uh, one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. Right, so that's, that's what a Jew isn't, Paul says verse twenty nine no, a person is a Jew. Who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code? Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. So who is it that in the end is going to get the verdict of God's acceptance and approval and praise? Noted that at the end of verse 29. Who is it that's going to be praised by God at the final judgment? Well, it's the one whose heart has been circumcised by God's Spirit, been kind of washed clean by God's Spirit, so that they have a genuine faith in his promises, faith in his promises to us in the Gospel, the good news of what he's done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul makes this clear. Uh, What what, what does uh, the heart of a circumcised believer look like? A a heart that's been uh, circumcised by God's Spirit? Well, it's Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. The person whose heart has been circumcised uh, puts their faith, their confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10 verse 9, uh, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. No condemnation for you. You'll be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So I I just wonder, what is it that you put your confidence in before God? Maybe it's not a question that you sort of bring to mind very often. One day, all of us will come before the the judgment seat of God. Entering his heavenly courtroom, as it were, what gives you confidence that a holy and perfect God is going to accept you rather than reject you? Going to approve of you rather than judge you? God's warning in this passage is don't put your confidence in your religious privileges. Don't do that. It won't save you. They're good. Be thankful for them. But they're not sufficient. Don't put your confidence in your religious identity. Once again, good things. I hope you've got wonderful Christian connections. I hope you've been baptized. I hope you've become a member of our church. Wonderful outward signs of your identity as a Christian. But don't put your confidence in those things. Put your confidence simply and exclusively in Christ. Cling to Him in faith. Because it's really only in doing that that you can be absolutely secure that you will escape God's judgment and experience His love and favor and mercy. Secure, but because you know that on the cross, Christ, as it were, uh, took on your sins. He he put himself in the dock for your sins, switching places with you. Being rejected, that you might be accepted. Judged, that you might be saved. Broken, that you might be healed. Cast out, that you might be welcomed in. Experiencing incredible shame, that you might be honoured as a child of God. You see, uh, praise our God and Father. Praise Him for the fact that as we enter His heavenly courtroom, we do have something we can place our confidence in. We sang earlier, He is holy, holy, holy. The only thing that can give us confidence to come before Him is our Lord Jesus Christ. Putting our faith in Him. and That He was rejected, that we can be accepted. And That He was judged, that we can be approved by God. Now let me pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for uh, this, your word. Uh, we thank you that you love us enough to, uh, uh, that your word is sharper than a two-edged sword and uh, it can, uh, we can feel exposed or confronted by it. Uh, I pray that uh, if there is anyone here who, who may have been placing their confidence before you in the, perhaps their, their religious privileges or their religious identity, I pray that that might have been exposed by the power of your spirit and your word. That they wouldn't run away from that, as scary as that might be. Uh, But they would confess that to you, Uh, and even tonight, for the first time, uh, put their confidence in Christ. Uh, For those of us who've had our confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ for uh, some time, or perhaps for a long time, uh, we pray that this passage might increase our assurance that, as we uh, cling to Him in faith, as our only hope uh, of escaping uh, Your wrath and judgment, uh, that we would experience our deep assurance. Uh, That he was rejected, that we might be sure of being accepted. Uh, That he was judged, that we might be sure of being saved. Uh, We pray this in his name. Amen.